Next Thursday, the 12th of May, is International ME Awareness Day, and in this week's perspective, we find out more about this highly debilitating condition and the optimism that an often promised service for people who have ME is just around the corner. I'm president of ME Support Isle of Man and my daughter Kitty has had ME for around 14 years. I have seen firsthand how debilitating the condition can be, the stresses that causes on people with ME and their carers and the battles people with ME face in getting appropriate support. So what is ME? Dr Charles Shepherd explains. To start off with, there's, there's a transition between having a, a, a post-viral fatigue, a post-viral fatigue syndrome, and then this developing into what we call ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, everyone's familiar with, with the sort of post-viral debility that people get for a few weeks or uh, after a dose of flu. That, that's very common. Um, where, where this persists more than a few weeks, we might start to use the term post-viral fatigue syndrome so you've not only got post-viral fatigue but you've got this sort of range of symptoms that are quite common uh, or characteristic um, to ME so you've got this very debilitating fatigue it's activity induced quite often accompanied by pain Um, people have got this brain fog what we call cognitive dysfunction they've got what we call dysautonomia their autonomic nervous system isn't functioning correctly so when they move from sitting or lying down to standing, their pulse and blood pressure regulation isn't correct. So they feel faint um, along with that. They have problems with balance. They have problems with temperature control. And on top of all that, um, they just feel unwell, flu-like. So it's, 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 it's a combination of a, of, a, of a number of different symptoms, which are all quite debilitating in their own way, but putting them together, um, it, it really does make um, for, for, for an extremely unpleasant illness to have. And where these post-viral symptoms, post-viral syndrome symptoms persist for more than three months, then we'd be considering making a diagnosis of ME-CFS. And are we seeing with long COVID patients um, individuals being diagnosed with ME? We're starting to. There's a terrific overlap between long COVID and ME-CFS. It, it, it's hardly surprising because we know that ME is a, a post-viral, post-infectious neurological illness that also affects the immune system. So it's exactly the same, or it's got some very similar um, uh, features to what's going on in long COVID. So the similarities between long COVID and ME are that the, the pa- a lot of the patients with long COVID have these ME-type symptoms, their uh, activity-induced fatigue, cognitive dysfunction, dysautonomia, post-exertional malaise, pain, all these ME symptoms. But on top of that, they've got another layer. They've got their COVID symptoms. So this is probably, in some cases, related to organ damage from the actual COVID infection. So they've got lung damage. Some of them have even got problems with heart damage as well. So this is causing shortness of breath, palpitations. They may have ongoing fevers. Um, They've got loss of taste and smell. So they've got two layers to it, the ME-type symptoms and the the, the actual COVID symptoms. That was Dr. Charles Shepherd, one of the leading UK experts on ME. June Corlett, chair of ME Support Isle of Man, has ME. So how difficult is it to cope with? I was disabled. I was... Uh, incapacitated, I was unable to talk for large periods, unable to talk 
with a friend for more than five minutes without getting tired. It was, you know, work was a distant dream and um, I couldn't feed myself at times. You know, I couldn't, couldn't cook for myself, you know, <laughs> couldn't get close to cooking for myself. Couldn't even, you know, get a um, <laughs> shovel, shovel food with a fork into my mouth. And it was just horrendous. Life was taken away from me completely. From not being able to talk at all, I was able to be present in the conversation with with my girlfriend Becky, but I'd be only getting out you know one or two word answers, and I wouldn't. To be honest, I wasn't listening to what she was saying. I wasn't able to digest what she was saying. I was pretending to listen, um, and it was. I mean, realistically, it was it was two years until you know, me and Becky could have any sort of meaningful conversation with each other where I'm, I feel like myself and I'm able to engage. And yeah, from August 2018 to December 2020, there was no um, no meaningful ability to, to communicate comfortably with a friend. Um, you could push yourself through a 25-minute conversation, but it would be a struggle. It wasn't fun. Um, and it's, yeah, just these last few months that that sort of thing's been coming back. The lowest point was towards the end of June or the start of July uh, 2019 and my sort of only available option was to do even less than I was already doing um, because I couldn't do do anything else and um, I tried as much as I could to sort of get back into the routine I was in in February or March of 2019 um, unsuccessfully so we set a new you know low water mark in terms of how little I do in the day to try and get through to the next day without any more damage and try to get through to the next week and try and you know get back into the situation where we thought where we thought there were mild tiny improvements each week or each month that was the objective and to achieve that um, my day involved getting up. Well, no, not getting up. The alarm went off at normal about half seven. And then I'd lie in bed because I didn't have the energy to get out of bed. There's no point. Um, and I'd get up and I'd have breakfast. I'd feel, feel rotten. And that would be one of the highlights of the day gone because I'd finished having breakfast. Um, so it wouldn't be a rushed exercise either. It would. I wouldn't be able to, you know, uh, have a bowl of cereal and then have whatever else I was having immediately afterwards. I'd need a break, so it would take like half an hour to get through my, my breakfast, um, if not longer. And then, and then we're into the routine of the day, which would be um, sat in this living room or lying down on the sofa in this living room with no music on because I couldn't tolerate any noise. Not allowed to use my phone because didn't have the energy to you know, press the buttons or take any information in. Um, wasn't able to turn the TV on. I could use the stairs about twice a day, a real a struggle. Um, so I'd use those as opportunities to rest in bed um, a couple of times a day for half an hour or so 
But the other times, because I didn't have the energy for the stairs, I'd be switching the lights off in the living room and, and resting on the on the sofa with my, uh, my legs up. And yeah, that was my day. I mean, I was just letting the time go by. I remember lying on that, that sofa or sitting up on that sofa and just watching the clock that was on the wall at the time, waiting for the next 20 minutes to expire. And that's what my day was. You get to the, get to that next 20 minutes um, and then you've achieved a small milestone and you can start stealing yourself for the next 20 minutes. And it's not like you've got nice, pleasant thoughts going through your head. You're not in a good um, position. You don't have the energy to think about things clearly. And... Um, and you don't have anything going on in your life. Your life is complete void. So your mind is generally drifting to things that have happened in the past and you, you're going back over those. And um, and yeah, and then you don't even have the release of being able to have a nap in the day because you need to be able to sleep when you get to the end of the day. Um, you know, ME is this overwhelming fatigue, which appears in a variety of different symptoms but it's not tiredness it's not tiredness that we all know from lack of sleep you can't catch up with the illness by sleeping in the day all you can do is ruin your sleep pattern and make yourself worse so the day is all about endurance just enduring the day um when i was that bad at least it was yeah just the load your body can accept is nothing so you do nothing and I was struggling to eat as well at that stage. So eating is not fun. It's, that is just a process you have to force yourself through. It's really quite unpleasant. Um, and yeah, and then, you know, miraculously, the evenings are even worse than the day because you start getting tired naturally um, like a normal person would. And, and somehow it's even more difficult to get through the 20 minute cycles and yeah, it's just horrible. Absolutely awful. You you would much rather be in prison. You'd much rather, you know, <laughs> um, be put in any other circumstances. It feels like at the time where at least in those other circumstances that might be traumatic, you have some sort of stimulus, you know, that life means something. Um, and I remember every day you get this, momentary you know um five second window of not knowing what life's about you wake up in the morning and as we all do you gradually start remembering what's ahead of you in the day and that was that was the best part of the day before you remember what what what's wrong with you um <laughs> what your daily routine is and then you just have to get on with the 15 or 16 hours of putting up with being awake and then you get to go to sleep again. Yeah, well, listening to myself back in that interview, I, I was reflecting on when my illness was most severe and that lasted a good couple of years when it was really, really difficult. But ME is, a, is an illness that creates a spectrum so um, each individual sits on that spectrum and each individual experiences the illness um, in a different way. And um, some people have a, a mild experience of it. Some people have a, a moderate experience of it. Some people have a, an extremely severe um, experience of it. And um, 
you can move up and down that that spectrum so uh i'm now a couple of years on from when it was um most difficult and i'm seeing small improvements which appear over you know quite a prolonged period of time but i'm seeing small improvements and uh, I, you know i'm optimistic that they're going to continue and and it must be i mean it must have felt well, I don't know, like the whole world had collapsed for you when, when you realised just how severe this, this condition can be. And also, uh, you know, it's it, it, anyone who, who gets a diagnosis of ME knows that there's a fair chance that they could have it for the rest of their lives. Yeah, well, I had ME for seven years before I was diagnosed, so... Um, for the majority of those seven years, um, the experience was quite mild and um, I could continue on with a normal life, but with some limitations, I couldn't play sports to the level I wanted to. Um, you know, Sometimes I, I dipped out of social events because I was you know, struggling to find the energy for it. Um, and then that, w- that was really the, um, the, the, you know, the reason that I, I, my illness was exacerbated. I didn't have a diagnosis. Um, and you know the really tough times were were created by the lack of advice when I was initially ill with glandular fever in 2012. Um, yeah, for me it it was really difficult to to come to terms with how long it might last, um, and um, you know I had to be really determined to stay positive that um, you know even if the illness lingered, I'd find a way to live with it. Yeah, and and. I suppose one of the other things that uh, is very obvious to me as a carer is the the whole issue of parents and friends. Um, I mean, you, you as the person with ME make uh, you know, a concerted effort when you know someone's coming round to the house, or, or you know that you're going out for, uh, for even if it's only for a very short period. You'll you'll do your best to appear uh, as though uh, you know you're in in in, in good spirits and good form. Um, and then, of course, uh, you're potentially then crashing for the rest of the week. And the people who've met you think, oh, gosh, well, he's obviously doing doing very well. He's, he's recovered uh, significantly. Yeah, well, there's um, one thing that really helped me was putting my story out on social media. So um, once I had a diagnosis and I sort of come to terms with it, I made a conscious decision to be very open about you know the extent of the illness and the way in which it was affecting me. But that was a really effective way of getting my friends and even you know, some of my family members up to speed with what I was going through, and that helped um, you know fill that gap of understanding between what they see in a, a short window, maybe when they speak to me, versus the the reality of what I'm living with, um, and then. What what we're seeing and what you know, we've always seen with with people with ME and also now people with long COVID is you know they might be trying to keep up appearances. Um, so in the early stages of their illness, um, they might still be able to do some some work. They may still just about be able to do the hours that they're required to do, um, and they're crashing when they're not keeping up appearances at work. And that can be a really dangerous cycle to go in. You you putting all your energy into the thing where you're out in public or you're, you're around people um, and then you're in this dangerous phase of, of being overtired um, when you're not having to make, make up appearances. And, and it's a natural thing, isn't it, uh, that I, th- I think just about everybody wants to, to be able to, to, do, to, you know, to be out there in the world and, and getting on with things and, and being engaged with work and uh, 
you know, if you're not feeling a hundred percent, you know, you 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 um, you either recuperate at home and then and then get back to to work, and then when you are getting back to work, you recognise that, well, you know, you're not going to be a hundred percent, but you just fight through it, and 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 you'll be back to normal. Um, but that's the very worst thing for people with ME. Absolutely, it's, it's, uh, it needs to be very, very carefully managed. Um, the return to work for for somebody who has um, a post-viral illness like ME and and long COVID. I think that there are opportunities to um, make that easier with flexible working arrangements. Um, working from home can help, um, and having an open mind as to how long the return to work will take. It may, may need to be over a particularly extended period of time, but um, you know, for the employer and the employee, um, you're looking at the the long term outcome. If you can get somebody well again, or, or or help them to improve a little bit, then that's in everybody's interests. And uh, you, you've um, spoken to Leslie Pickering and Dr. Shepherd. Um, who, who uh, we'll hear from now, who um, will tell us a little bit about some of the pitfalls. Post-viral fatigue can be a fluctuating illness. And how does a patient's condition generally change? It would change if they have got too many demands on their energy. At times, they're pushing themselves and they're, they're working past the limits of energy that they've got, then they will go worse. And conversely, if they're... Uh, managing their energy levels well yeah the ideal is for them to be working at say you know using 80 percent of the energy that they've got and if they can work at that parameter then they should you know be able to increase over time the amount that they're doing and, and at least stay stable is me in post-viral fatigue a primarily physical or mental illness it really is both and i would include in there emotional as well because the you know the demands on the body, the stresses on the body come from physical activities, from cognitive activities, mental activities, and also from emotional activities that we do. So it's any demands on the body that is going to be taking energy from it. How can long-term issues be avoided? That if you manage people very early on well in this illness and they don't go back to work, they don't go into this cycle of of, of doing too much, then have crashing, doing too much, going back to work, etc. Um, if, if you can get the act, particularly the what we call the activity management correct, that's activity and en- energy management is correct in the very very early stages, then that can mitigate against a lot of long term ill health from that. And what are the common pitfalls for those experiencing post viral fatigue? I would say trying to increase activities too soon and pushing through the limits that the body's got and trying to return to that normal life quicker than maybe they should be. Quite often people don't reduce the amount of stress that they're under and they don't reduce the responsibilities that they've got. So they may return to work quickly. They continue looking after the children and doing what are their normal daily activities, but really they haven't got enough energy to be able to do those at that time. So that was Dr. Shepherd, uh, who is the, uh, the sort of the main uh, advisor to ME, the ME group in, in, in the UK, and Leslie Pickering, who you've actually had some help from. Yeah, so Les- Leslie Pickering was um, was my specialist and helped me uh, dig myself out of the hole when I was most ill. And uh, 
you know, really, really grateful that I was able to, to find her through our own research. But, um, it, you know, it shouldn't have been the case that I had to, um, you know, pay for that help out of my own pocket. And it, it shouldn't have been the case that I had to, to do my own research to find somebody to help. But it, but it did help, and it was it it, it made a dramatic uh, difference for you, didn't it? Absolutely, and that was really apparent. Is that you can help people with these conditions. There are things you can do to help them out, um, and given the the right tools, people can can stabilise with their illness. They can go out of the cycle of boom and bust, um, and they can sort of build the the building blocks um, to um, a recovery, whether that be a full recovery or a partial recovery. And of course, that uh, neatly, I suppose, leads us on to what uh, is hopefully going to be happening uh, fairly soon. I mean, the, we, we're obviously we're joined by the minister, and hopefully, the minister is going to be able to talk uh, a positive uh, talk with us. Um, but we, we've, you know, it's, it's fair to say we've been promised ME services for for quite some years now. I mean, certainly six years that we've we've had budgets been talked about and uh, ministers making uh, commitments and saying yes yes we're definitely going to make something happen here um, but uh, it's it's been a long six years waiting for that to happen um, uh, what, so so what is ME Support Isle of Man actually looking for Julian? I actually have it down as eight years. <laughs> oh right, oh well, <laughs> but, uh, there you go. Um, it's certainly been too long, and um, I think the pandemic has really shone a shone a light, a spotlight on on the lack of provision in this area. Um, you know, there are clinicians who are trying to help um, individuals on the Alman. That you know, that's been there for a while, but um, those clinicians don't have enough support um, from the system and the network um, within Manx Care, and 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 GPs also need you know clearer uh, pathways and, and greater support um and and the, the things that can be done beyond the, the immediate healthcare setting as well um to provide help to family members um to help people access um social security benefits um social care is a is a factor here um awareness to prevent people becoming ill in the first place um and it's, it's a whole um a different set of of things that are available to help people that you know we need to um, we need to get better at. As both Dewan Collett and Craig Morris have ME, various parts of this programme were recorded on separate occasions so that we could minimise the impact that taking part in the show had on their health. Here's a short conversation we had, which explains a bit more about the difficulties faced by people with ME. It's a different type of tiredness. So being sporty, I enjoyed getting tired because that meant I was getting fitter and stronger. I'd be more competitive, whereas having ME, it, it's the severity is so great that it means that even the smallest thing, like doing your teeth, it, it's like being run over by a bus. And it's not a kind of tiredness you recover from by sleeping or uh, you might need to rest for days or weeks or months to recover from sometimes. And, and it's so much more than just being tired as well, isn't it? I mean, there's, there's so mm. many other elements to this uh, I mean Kitty uh, for example finds it really difficult to, di- to digest food um, and actually if you've got a condition that mm. makes it difficult for you to digest food for nearly 14 years that has a big impact on you. Yeah I, I notice the stomach problems a lot and they're quite typical with ME although it may not be realised at the time on initial diagnosis and I 
I think that's a big a big part of you know all the different symptoms that are then amplified on top of the tiredness. So you're so tired and you can barely do that one thing, and then you can't think either, and you can't find the right word because you're so tired. And all you can do sometimes is is sometimes my body shuts down, and I just have to lie down and I can't speak and have to sleep for a few hours. The um, way in which you start losing your ability to communicate is um, something you obviously get used to because it happens so frequently. Mm. But it's so frustrating, particularly when you're first learning to live with the the illness. The you know, it can happen quite quickly as you hit the, you go past your threshold and then, you know, you you can't think of the words. It's not that, you know, it's not that you don't have the thought. You still have the thought of what you want to say, but your brain can't, mm. it doesn't have the energy to convert it into into words and sentences and you, you, you feel like you're effectively a mute. And, and, and that's the frustrating thing, I think, for, for the carer is that it is at that moment that you, as the person with ME, most needs the help of the and carer. Understanding. And you can't tell us what it is yeah. that you need. And if we, if we ask, uh, the chances are, if, you, if we're going to get any response at all, it's going to be a fairly aggressive mm. and negative sort of uh, response. I, I remember um, living with my mum briefly when I was severely ill, and um, deciding what I was going to have to eat was really a stressful conversation and I remember they were asking what I wanted for lunch and I didn't have enough energy to make a decision and to make that thought process happen to decide what I wanted for lunch. I didn't really have enough energy to have the conversation either and I was just really short. She's just she's just trying to help. She's trying to provide the most mm. essential part of, of my day and I was just angsty and and it wasn't deliberate. It's just when you're in that phase of the illness and, yeah, and your energy levels are so low. Function. And I think it's so hard to have the mental resources to find that extra compassion or kindness to deal with someone with ME or, or to sometimes to just accept where you are. But it's wonderful when it happens. I remember bumping into your mum once and she said to me, you know, are you well enough to talk to me for a few minutes? And luckily at that point I was. But just that little bit of knowledge, compassion, understanding makes a really big difference to your sort of ability to function and or I think not. As Nemi sufferers, sometimes you do have to be selfish as well. Yeah, it's and learning a, to say a, no. In a family environment, you have to say, you know, my health won't allow me to do something for your benefit. I'm going to be mm. selfish. Um, and that's draining when it adds up to months and years of... Yeah. of, of um, of the person having to be considerate and patient towards you, and it's not to say that the the relationship is diminished or mm. or that there's not a desire to help in both directions, but to look after yourself, you have to mm. be selfish. I think that's been a big part of the journey in talking to a lot of the services around the UK. That's why it, you know, particularly at the severe, and it, it does take you know more like a year, sometimes longer, for people to get to grips with things and adapt and. I remember reading Sue Pemberton's book and one of those things I picked up was about learning to be a little bit more assertive and to learn to say, no, I, you know, I just can't, I want to do that, I want to join in, but I literally can't. It is estimated that around 350 people in the Isle of Man have ME or myalgic encephalitis and it is estimated that a further 1,500 people have long COVID 
Not all of these people will be as severely affected as June and Craig, but many are. It's important to, to remember that um, a severe case is going to be receiving benefits, you know, incapacity benefit, disability allowance, probably income support, depending on their you know, personal circumstances. Um, they're no longer going to be paying income tax and national insurance on the job that they had before they were ill. Um, and, you know, their... Um, you know, ripple effect on the economy is lost. Um, you know, the 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 impact they were having working in the business or what you know whatever their you know career was before they fell fell ill. Um, there's a ripple effect. But you know, the, it it is really it's about human cost, isn't it? With these things, it's the the effect of um, you know me becoming ill on my mum or you know or my girlfriend um, or you know there are, there are parents who are becoming ill and they can't you know fend for or look after their children um, and you know it is a trauma you know it's a physical illness that creates a trauma you know for the individual and the family members um, and you know beyond the family members as well you know there's, there's people who are an important part of the community of falling ill with these illnesses and they're no longer contributing to a you know community event that they do every year or or whatever else their contribution is so um you know, it's a it's a really important issue for the community as a whole to to prevent these illnesses arising and then to help people when they are, are in that unfortunate position. And and minister, I mean, it, it is I mean, it's eight years apparently now uh, since we started having these conversations with your department. Um, it must feel um, well, I don't know, a, a little bit embarrassing as as minister that it's taken so long. But it is excellent now that uh, you are in a position to be able to start announcing real uh, and significant uh, improvements. I, I don't think I'd use the word embarrassing. I'd use the word unacceptable. I think I don't think it should take this long for a serious issue to be raised and then for something to be put in place to try and help address it. Uh, I think it's fair to say that with the support of the uh, ME charity, we've probably made more progress in the last six months than has been made in the previous seven years, seven and a half years. So uh, I think we're getting there. I think that's the the honest truth of it. We've got a service development lead appointed who's really helping drive the whole project forwards, which, again, that's uh, showing you something is actually happening on the ground. I mean, these aren't just promises that are being made. I think it's important that we we develop this service. And I think you mentioned before around the, the pandemic has, has heightened that a little bit, the need for this service. And I think that's probably what's helped focus people's minds. And, and of course... It's not as though there isn't a service. You know, there has been a service uh, which has been operating and has been very effective for some people. But I, I think, uh, Dewan, that the problem that ME Support Isle of Man has had is that the service is, is not particularly well funded uh, and, um, you know, it doesn't cover all the things that, that uh, you, you would really need to, uh, as much as anything, to help people avoid... Uh, ending up with severe uh, ME. That's right, and um, we're talking about complex illnesses here, and um, complex illnesses that aren't the same for each individual. So you need to get the diagnosis right, um, and at the moment, the the funding and the time um, and the type of of staff involved in the service isn't sufficient to to get the diagnosis right. So um, it means that people aren't always getting the right type of help. Um, it needs a, a well-thought-out structure to the service involving the right type of medical professionals covering the different areas. It needs GP primary care involvement. It needs um, therapy involvement, particularly occupational therapists. Um, and um, it needs um, 
you know physician oversight uh, particularly on the on the diagnostic side of things um and you know we need to to learn from what's been done well and what's been done not so well in in uk services as well and and thankfully we've got um you know the right individuals um providing a little bit of that expertise from the uk it can't be uh, overstated really just how harmful it can be for someone getting the wrong diagnosis with me can it yeah and 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 the, the timely nature of that advice as well um so uh you know me um can be mild it can be severe but a mild case can be turned into a severe case through bad advice and also through lack of advice so it's, i think it's quite easy for an individual naively to take the wrong choices in managing their own condition that takes them down a, a you know a devastating path um and you need to get in with the right advice early to to catch people before they um take themselves down down that route that was was avoidable for many and and of course craig who who we uh, heard uh, speaking in, in that conversation we had earlier um craig morris he he was very much in that position wasn't he he was you know he was a real sporty type he uh, rugby was it i think rugby rugby and uh, hockey uh, and yeah. uh, uh, marathons and 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 uh, and of course he did all the wrong things uh, you know he he, he uh, ended up with uh, some uh, a post viral issue uh, me and um because he was a sporty type, he, he knew about uh, having to work through pain barriers and he, he, he pushed and pushed, didn't he? And, and yeah, but it's, it's, it's remarkable to reflect on what Craig was doing in his life you know, before he was ill. All those uh, you know, uh, amazing achievements, you know, his career was going um, swimmingly as well at that stage. Um, and it's remarkable to look at what he's achieved while he's been unwell and... Um, Craig's been trying to, you know, liaise with with government departments for a number of years, and supported by yourself, Phil, um, to to improve awareness and and to get this issue taken more seriously. Um, and um, I think we're we're finally starting to see sort of the fruits of of that labour that you know Craig's been um, working away at for a number of years, and um, and there is there is a way of doing it well. There is a way of um, you know, patients with lived experience of an illness working closely with the healthcare provider and with government um, to give their experience and their knowledge um, and help build a, a robust response to a problem. And I suppose, Minister, it, 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 it must be a really difficult situation for you. You know, you, you will be getting a number of uh, situations where people, d- different conditions, people coming in saying the service is inadequate, um, and uh, you know if if you could supply this tiny amount of funding in comparison to your overall budget, then uh, all these potential savings could be made in in that the people could get better quicker. They would not perhaps get as ill as they are, um, but of course it's easy to for for, for people on our side, June and my side of the table, to make these uh, um, bold suggestions. But for you, uh, you're having to deal with the hard reality that government is quite strapped for cash at the moment. I, I think that's fair. I think there's the health service is the kind of service where you could always spend the money that's available and then more. Um, it's inevitable, I think. 
But I think that what we're looking at doing, what we're seeing now, is a gradual transformation of health away from this uh, this approach of treating people who are sick to actually trying to stop them getting sick in the first place. And so a lot of that involves pushing care out to primary care rather than having it in the hospital, about community care, community involvement, that patient-led approach that June mentioned. I think... What what I find quite interesting about the whole uh, ME model that's being developed, it's being worked up in partnership with various bodies, it's being uh, overseen by a local uh, team, there'll be local team delivering some of that service, but supported by UK-based specialists. And I think that sort of model is probably where we're looking at more broadly, I think, that, that approach that says, look, let's let's see what service we can deliver, the best possible service on Ireland, even if that means we have to take bits from elsewhere and actually get some support from, from UK organisations and UK clinicians in order to deliver the best possible service on the ground. I think it's it's quite a healthy uh, thing to be looking at, actually. So I'm, I'm quite excited to see what the service does look like as we get closer to seeing seeing it sort of go live, I suppose, in its new form, because that, I think, will help us uh, see, well, if it works here for ME support, which is, like June said, quite a complex uh, set of needs, well, this model should then work for other areas and other treatments that also have equally complex needs. And they're the ones we tend to struggle with, I think, on the island, because they do need that very specialist input and specialist support to be provided to clinicians and GPs and, and everyone else on the ground, um, whereas some of the more straightforward conditions, you know, we, we tend to do pretty well with those on the other man. It is those more complex sets of, of illnesses that we struggle with, and it is because of that access and availability of specialist resource. So if, if the model we're building uh, for the ME service looks like it's going to work, actually could that provide us with a good template to say, well, let's do something similar for, for the other kinds of complex conditions that we are struggling, I think, to provide a holistic service for on the island? It's fair to say, and I can certainly say this with some experience having been in government, that um, government does have a habit of waiting to see what they do in England and then copying them. Um, it seems, or it gets a, I, I get the feeling that with this ME service, we're, we're, we're slightly uh, ahead of the game, perhaps, uh, in, in, in certain regard. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, I think it's it's quite easy to see what they do elsewhere and then lift and, and drop onto the island, and especially in something like healthcare, where it is complicated and it is specialised, and it is becoming ever more so specialised, I think, as time goes on. It's much easier to, to adopt what they do in the UK. And I think the model that we're looking at in healthcare more broadly is this kind of partnership approach that says well if they've got a ready-made pathway that works well why don't we just adapt that for the Isle of Man rather than starting from scratch and I think that's what we're doing here with with ME is we're not saying let's go right back to the basics and design our own service from the ground up we're actually saying well let's tap into a lot of that pre-existing expertise not just from like I said UK clinicians but also patients and service users and say actually how do we build the right service for us and pick the bits that that do work And, and that for me feels like quite a healthy model and a healthy approach to things. And, and what is perhaps unusual, um, certainly in, in my experience anyway, is is the health service really has uh, engaged with ME Support Isle of Man. You know, this is not just a case of, well, where the experts, you know, where the doctors, where the medically trained people uh, leave it to us. Um, they, they, they have actually really very positively engaged with ME Support Isle of Man. 
See, that shouldn't that shouldn't be surprising. Actually, that shouldn't be you shouldn't be feeling that you're surprised by that. That should be the default. I think government uh, should engage with with people with service users for whatever service they're looking to develop. And I think it's probably even more true in in health, uh, where you are saying, okay, you've got the clinical expertise on the one side, but also you've got real people on the other who are really suffering. And it's about making sure they do get the help that they need, not just the help that we think they should get. And there's a difference there, I think, quite a lot of the time. And so, no, it, it is hopefully reflective of the new culture and new approach that we're taking within Max Care and the Department of Health to be more open and engaging and to actually, when we talk about consulting with people and engaging with them, it's it's genuine. You know, we want the good feedback, which we sometimes get from you guys. We want the bad feedback that we sometimes get from you guys because it all helps build that picture of what's really going on and how you can really make things better, I think. And, June, from your experience uh, actually working with... Uh, medical professionals and indeed uh, civil servants who, who, who've been trying to drive this forward. It's fair to say that there have been some frustrations, but on the whole, it's been a positive experience. Absolutely. I don't think we should pretend that it's an easy process to, to do, even when you've got both sides willing to to communicate and willing to share ideas and work together. Um, there's conflicting priorities, there's... Um, you know, judgment calls to make on you know what's most important and um and you're right you know at times we've thought that certain things should have been prioritized and done sooner um but but equally you know we're, we're, we're sat in a privileged position of having one priority which is which is ma um and we appreciate that the people we're talking to have multiple priorities multiple illnesses and multiple demands on their time um the stresses and strains of their own workload and um and, and we had to be disciplined in our communication with Manx Care. We had to, um, you know, have internal conversations as a charity as to what our priorities were, what we were asking for, um, how to how to put our ideas forward in a constructive way, so that it was something that Manx Care could could do something with. Long COVID, a, a, a concern I think uh, that many people have, and, and indeed a condition that people a lot of people on the Isle of Man have, have now got. Uh, you know, we were, as an organisation, trying to persuade the department to, to produce some fairly basic uh, advice to people to so people who had had COVID and and appeared to be getting uh, long COVID, so that uh, it could be you know they could avoid getting uh, full blown ME. Yeah, or uh, or whatever their 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 type of long COVID would be. There's a there's a risk of exacerbation and, and it being made worse. Um, and again, it's it's not an easy thing to to get right. Um, uh, the awareness um, material in the UK is a bit hit and miss. There's some things which are okay in the UK, and some things which aren't so great. Um, and it's the same with the the actual services. There's some parts of the UK where they do it well, and some parts that they don't do it very well. So you need to to make a judgment call on where you're going to go for that um, expertise and and that um, and those resources. Um, and then you need to make a, a call on how you you're getting that out to the public and how you're doing that effectively. Whether that to be on a you know a one to one basis with an individual, or whether that be in a group of people with a room in a, in a room together, or whether that be through the media. And um, I guess you know, in spite of all of those factors to, to be considered, we felt like there were some obvious opportunities to do more with with awareness raising. Um, you know, the the ME community saw the long covid problem coming in in march or april of 2020 it was always obvious to us 
those who lived with chronic post-viral illnesses that the pandemic was going to create more cases you know similar to ours um and it feels like you know two years in the the response and the the attempts to to get the message out there have been have fallen short of what they could have been and and minister i mean this is this is one of the problems i think of governments you know ministers can have very worthy aims and ambitions and um but but ultimately um i don't know is it is it a lack of money is it a lack of staff resource is it uh, you know wh- why is it that obvious things things that are so blatantly obvious um for for for, for organizations like ours um become so complicated and and embroiled in in, in bureaucratic processes i think it, it maybe does come down a little bit to to staff i mean there's a a challenge we have in the department at the moment is we're quite small so we have a very small uh, team and they're still expected to do everything that is expected of a department of health in terms of strategy and policy and so you've you really are trying to build a team that can uh, do multiple jobs, that can step outside the box, that can uh, try and be empowered a bit to, to make decisions and take actions themselves. And it's definitely an element of that, I think. But there's also an element uh, more broadly across, I think, government um, of, of risk aversion. And I think this is the problem is you do something, you will get criticised by someone for doing it. So you have to make sure that what you're doing is absolutely right and you've covered all the bases. And so even something that appears on the surface, this is quite straightforward, why can't we do it? It does carry with it all of that risk of, well, what if it goes wrong? What if, like June's just mentioned, you've picked it from the wrong part of the UK and it happens to be bad advice or bad leaflets or whatever it is. And I think that risk aversion plays into a lot of decision making in government and it, it takes a while for the, the inertia to, to get over that sometimes. So either you need... Um, politicians who don't mind taking a bit of the risk uh, and have managed to filter that culture down I think through their teams and that takes time obviously uh, or you do unfortunately get mired in some of that that process and that delay and, and I think it's inevitable that the civil service as an organisation kind of minimises risk by focusing more on process than necessarily on outcomes and it's not a, a criticism it's just I think the way it is uh, but I think it ultimately stems from not just ministers but Timwald and politicians more broadly I think it, the more willing that Timwald is to acknowledge that mistakes can be made but people do things with the best of intentions and that nobody's perfect i think the the quicker you'll see things get developed the more you start seeing politicians throwing stones and pointing fingers and jumping up and down i think the more risk averse then a government as, as a body would become and it's harder then to get things done quickly the civil service generally is trying to stop the minister doing bold things because they know that ministers can end up um falling flat in the face um if they do that um, and uh, of course, the job of the minister then is to uh, actually say to the civil servants, "Well, actually, no, I'm prepared to take this risk because I want to get things done." I think there's an element of that. Um, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite as clear cut as you, you kind of imply, but you know just as well as, as I do how the system works and how these things uh, can end up happening. But I think it does have to be on on all of us really to, uh, like you say, sometimes say thank you. Uh, for things that are done well and to acknowledge that when things are done well and I think working with charities like GEMI support shows that when you, you do something well actually you guys are quite open about that uh, you know and, and when things are going well you're quite happy to say we've had good engagement with staff with good engagement with clinicians Manx Care on board things are progressing and I think that's important that you're able to have those conversations publicly that we can say sometimes you know actually it's not all bad <laughs> You know, some things do work, and when they do work, you're right, we should call that out and say, well done, keep going, because I think that will encourage then more uh, sections and more parts of the of government to be able to stand up and say, well, if they can do it, 
how we can do it as well and hopefully you'll build that more positive kind of reinforcing culture rather than a, a blame culture which i think tends to be or historically at least seems to have been the case uh, i mean what would you hope would we we would be t- talking about if we are talking about me uh, in in another 12 months time um i think the, the key thing is making sure that people can get access to that early support and that early advice so that in 12 months I'd hope to be able to be in a position to be saying well actually GPs have had all the training they need the resources are there they know if they are suspicious that someone maybe has ME or or post-viral condition that they know how to refer that person into specialist teams and specialist support Uh, and that actually people themselves feel that they are getting that support and that advice and aren't having to like June said right at the start of of when we started talking today about him having to go out of his way to find that on his own that's the bit that I think we need to make sure doesn't happen is that people don't need to go and use their own resources and own time and their own energy to go and find out solutions to their problems they need to be able to go to their local gp their local well-being hub or, you know, or even the me charity themselves and say actually what can i do what, what should i be doing where do i get help where do i get support and then to feel they're actually getting that help and support and obviously then on the flip side of it for those clinicians providing that support to feel that they are supported themselves that they've got access to the training and resources that they need to make sure they're providing the best possible care for for their patients Ewan, um final word then obviously you're the chair of ME Support Isle of Man um, it's a big year really for the organisation this this is this is really um, the, the culmination of, of an awful lot of hard work on, on your uh, part and, and many others uh, who've been supporting you um, what are your hopes I suppose for the next 12 months both personally and indeed for, for the organisation and for people with ME well I hope that Manx Care delivers on its promises and I hope that uh, patients are allowed to be part of that feedback cycle. Max Care have indicated they will be, um, and patients will be the judge of the success. You know, twelve or eighteen months time. I hope our organisation is able to do a little bit more for our members because we'll have a bit more time. We'll be doing less political campaigning. Um, and personally, you know, I help, hope my health continues to to improve, and that you know I may even return to work at some point. In a, in a part-time capacity. As a carer of someone whose life has been dramatically impacted by ME, this has been quite an emotional programme to make. I hope you found it informative. My thanks to Health Minister Laurie Hooper and June Collett, Chair of ME Support Isle of Man, for their help in making this programme. You can find out more by visiting www.mesupportiom.info. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn. Goromayo, thanks for listening.